This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, the cancer impact of COVID-19 here and in the UK. Masks are put to the test. How might your cloth mask perform to interrupt those COVID aerosols? And is toilet paper holding a reflection of your personality? Neurotic people reported more concerns and were more pessimistic about the duration estimate. Conscientious people undertook more precautions. And people who were more extroverted bought more toilet paper. So you, you always knew it. Extroverts in aisle three. That's personality traits and COVID-19 behaviour later in the show. As you hear the daily reports of increasing numbers of people infected with the COVID-19 virus in Victoria, worrying as they are, how would you react if you knew there were several times as many infections as being detected, say 2,000 rather than 500? The missing numbers are called undocumented cases and are people with no symptoms or mild ones who don't come forward. Knowing the true numbers of COVID cases also gives a more accurate idea of what's called the infection fatality rate, the chances of dying compared to the total number infected. The US state of Indiana decided to find out the real number. This morning I spoke to, to Nir Manakemi, who is Professor of Health Policy and Management at Indiana and Purdue University in Indianapolis. We were trying to estimate the prevalence of current and previous infections with the SARS-CoV-2 virus in Indiana. How's the COVID pandemic been going in Indiana before we get to your results? We started off relatively well, and in the last couple of weeks, it looks like we're getting ourselves into a little bit more trouble, but nothing alarming yet. What did you do in this survey? We did a random sample of Indiana residents and tested them both for active viral infection and the presence of antibodies for the virus. So you went in and did nose and throat swabs and took blood? So we did, yeah, nasal pharyngeal swabs and drew blood. We ended up randomly sampling almost 4,000 individuals. And what did you find? Well, so at the end of April, we found that about 2.79% of the Indiana population was either currently or previously infected, so that we knew how many people were infected up until that point. And how did that compare to the known number of cases from the testing regime that you had in place for people who might be symptomatic and coming forward? We ended up estimating about 187,000 people were infected which was about 11 times greater than the number of known cases at the time. Did you ask these people, go back and ask them whether they'd had symptoms? Yeah, and we found that of those that were currently infected, 44% said they were experiencing none of the symptoms on the list. Which is remarkably close to what I think they found on the Diamond Princess on one of the cruise ships. That is true. Were you surprised that it was 11 times? We weren't surprised as much as we were curious. We knew that cases were obviously underestimating infections. We had real no way of knowing exactly by how much. Before we get to the fatality rate, what are the implications of it being 11 times? I mean, have you got any sense of the contribution to the infection rate? You mentioned earlier that Indiana is beginning to lose the plot as far as COVID-19 infections are concerned. Do you think it's coming from this undocumented group? 
you know, I, I almost like to conceptualize everyone who's potentially infected on a pyramid, where at the top of the pyramid you have deaths. That's the smallest proportion. Underneath that you have hospitalizations. Underneath that you have symptomatic people who seek care. Under that, you have symptomatic people who do not seek care because the symptoms aren't serious enough. And under that, you have the asymptomatic folks. And really, almost everything we know about the disease comes from people at the top of the pyramid. The people who have died, the people who have been hospitalized, or the people who are relatively severely symptomatic. And so we really just never knew the size of the pyramid and didn't know the ratios of each of the groups to each other. The people that are out in the community with little or no symptoms are probably responsible for most of the new infections. And what was the infection fatality rate? So we calculated an infection fatality rate of 0.58%. So that's about 1 in 171 infections ends up in death. Which is roughly where people have been saying for quite some time, almost since the beginning, that it's going to be somewhere between half and 1%. I think Tony Fauci right at the beginning said that likely the infection fatality rate is going to be about 1%, but other people said it's a bit lower than that. But it's still significant at 0.6%. Yes. So lots of the other estimates have come from either places like the uh, Diamond Princess cruise ship or people who were repatriated out of China back to their home countries and were infected and quarantined and they figured out the fatality rate that way. Or it was based on models. And so ours was sort of more of a traditional way of approaching this, figuring out and estimating somewhat reliably the infection rates and figuring out from that what the fatality rate is. And so why is this significant? Well, for one, it kills about six times more people than the seasonal flu, which is much less likely to be asymptomatic, and we have a prevention for and we have a treatment for the fatality rate is highly contingent on the population that we're talking about. The fatality rate on the cruise ship, for example, was higher than what it was in Indiana, in part because they have people who are higher risk there with an average age, probably eight or nine years older. The virus doesn't have a fatality rate. The virus in a given population does. And I think that's important also. I want to bring this home to Australia, and I don't expect you to be an, uh, an expert in what's going on in Australia, but I'll give you some of the parameters. State of Victoria here in Australia has got an outbreak. Current cumulative number of cases active are about over 4,000, and a very significant testing regime widely available. If that was Indiana, what would be your guess as to how many times more people are infected in Victoria compared to the ones you're detecting via testing? If a significant number of people were being tested and the reason for testing was not just to deal with symptoms, a 1% or a less than 1% positivity rate I think would be somewhat reassuring. I'd also want to see what the capacity was in hospitals. I'd want to see what's going on with some of the other measures because I think how many hospitalizations there are right now, how many deaths there are, what the positivity rate is, how many people are testing, how many new cases, all of these are ultimately trying to get at what the prevalence is. And so I'd want to see a complete picture. And if everything was pointing in a similar story direction, I'd be more reassured. 
Well, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Have a great day. And I'll have another twist on this story about undocumented infections with the COVID-19 virus tonight on 7.30 on ABC Television or iView. By the way, the positive rate of testing in Victoria yesterday was just under 3%, not 1%, which is a worrying increase. Nir Manakemi is Professor of Health Policy and Management at Indiana and Purdue University in Indianapolis. And you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. With Victoria mandating mask wearing for people in Melbourne and Mitchellshire when leaving their homes and New South Wales strongly advising it, masks, what they're made of and how well they stop spread have been questions swamping Coronacast, the daily COVID podcast made by Tegan Taylor, Will Ockenden and me. Well, a new study should help, and it's just been published in the British journal Thorax. One of the authors is a regular guest on the Health Report, Professor Rhina McIntyre, who's head of the biosecurity programme at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back, Rhina. Good evening, Norman. Were you listening to Nir Manakemi's interview there? Uh, I caught the last bit of it, yes. What did you think? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, we don't actually have enough data on to estimate population rates of infection. Um, there has been a national zero survey done, but I think um, it was done before the resurgence in Victoria, so things could be different today. So we just need to wait and see. And that zero survey, I think, is of pathology samples and uh, doing testing on blood taken for other purposes. That's right, yeah. So let's go to your mask study. Um, and you did this with the Department of the Faculty of Engineering at the University of New South Wales. Yeah, we've got a great collaboration with the Faculty of Engineering, which has been going for about three years. Um, and it's a, a co-supervised PhD student, Pratik Bal, who, who was the first author on that study, um, who's working in my lab in the Kirby Institute um, doing these experiments to try and look at how aerosols and droplets are emitted from humans during coughing, sneezing, breathing, speaking, and so on. So, um, What's the technology it, that he does to observe it? So he uses LED lights and um, a particular method which he's developed with the, his two engineer supervisors, Professor Con Doolan and Dr. Charitha De Silva, um, to actually measure the velocity of the emissions um, as well. And this is assuming, as did the 230 scientists that wrote to WHO, that aerosols are a significant cause of spread of, COVID, of the COVID-19 virus, something that's contested at a Commonwealth level, perhaps not at state level. Well, I mean, I think the evidence is pretty clear that it's spread by aerosols, and I don't think the debate is actually about science. So what did you so you, you so you you were you were able to measure aerosols as they were expelled and you then presumably just tested different kinds of face coverings. Yeah, so this this particular paper is more just a visual um representation to show people the difference between not wearing a mask, wearing a single layered cloth mask, wearing a two layered cloth mask and wearing a surgical mask with three layers when you speak cough and sneeze and you know you just visually you can see what a big difference it makes when you're wearing any face covering you know even a one-layered mask reduces the amount of emissions substantially uh, but a two-layered mask reduces it more and a surgical mask is better than a two-layered cloth mask which is interesting because i think in the past you've you've said that a single layer mask isn't really worth it you've got to really go for three-layer masks yeah, so remember this this study is just a visual 
uh, visualization study. It doesn't tell you about the actual clinical effectiveness. So it doesn't tell you about prevention of infection. Um, so when you look at those studies, which is the randomized controlled clinical trials and also observational epidemiologic studies, um, that's where you get more of a sense of the clinical protection conferred by different kinds of masks. So surgical masks, according to the Australian standard, are the most effective in terms of what? And those are not the N95 masks. Those are just standard surgical masks. Yes, and but this is, remember, for what's called source control, which is for when, you know, on the assumption that someone has the infection, whether they know it or not, if they're wearing a mask, it substantially reduces the risk of them infecting other people because the aerosols don't get out when they breathe, speak or cough. And the, st- the three-layer mask that you and I have talked about on air before with dense cotton on the inside, cotton polyester and a waterproof layer on the outside, they're, they're less effective than the surgical mask? Well, we didn't, in this study, we didn't test a three-layered cloth mask. I think it's perfectly um, reasonable to think that you could design a cloth mask that, that is as good as a surgical mask in preventing outward emissions. And what about the double layer? Was that, was that two layers of cotton? Yes. So the double layer, um, you know, protects more than a single layer, but not as much as three layers in a surgical mask. But we did, as I said, we didn't compare three layers of cloth versus three layers of surgical. And what about scarves? Because it's in Victoria they've said, look, they, your scarf will be fine if you can't find a mask. So obviously it depends on the material that the scarf is made of. If it's sort of a heavy wool, cotton kind of blend or some kind of heavy material, it may be okay. But if it's like a muslin or a silk chiffon type fabric, which is very flimsy, um, it may not be very effective at all. Really you need high thread count, fine weave, and quite a dense fabric. And finally, I've seen online more and more discussion about the candle technique. In other words, put on your mask and try and blow out a candle, claiming that if you can blow it out, you haven't got a good enough mask on. Is that valid? Um, Look, I only found out about it recently myself from um, a doctor in, a dermatologist in Brisbane, Dr. Margaret Oziemski, who um, has designed some cloth masks at a time when she couldn't get surgical masks um, in Brisbane. And she sent me this information on the blow test where she took some videos of herself blowing out um, a candle with different masks. And I think it's actually a sensible way that people can test out a mask themselves at home. Um, If you use the same force of blowing, uh, it's quite a good way to check whether how good your mask is. If you if you blow out the candle, it's not that good. Rhino, handy information as always. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye. Professor Rhino McIntyre is head of the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. As Melbourne and Mitchell Shire have gone back into lockdown, the debate about health trade-offs has re-emerged. One which we've mentioned before is that people may not come forward for breast and cervical cancer screening and may be less likely to participate in bowel cancer screening. In addition, people with worrying symptoms like bleeding, weight loss, tummy bloating and fatigue may not see their GP for investigation. Both together could lead to late diagnosis and the need for more complex treatments with side effects and perhaps poorer survival. We'll come to the Australian situation in a moment, but last week two papers were published on predicted cancer deaths and survival in the UK. Richard Sullivan, who's Professor of Cancer and Global Health at King's College London, was the author of one of them. Welcome to The Health Report. Good morning. Thank you. What's been the situation in the UK with non-COVID issues like cancer detection and care? 
Yeah, it's really been quite serious. I mean, it, really very early on, it was quite clear that a lot of the decisions about the lockdown, national lockdown, were not taking into consideration the impact that either the messaging or the reduction in routine services were going to have on all the other um, non-communicable diseases, mental health, etc. And obviously, cancer is very, very sensitive to not just delays in diagnosis, but also to delays or omissions in treatments. And what we've seen in the UK, um, particularly in the English NHS, is a radical reduction in the number of new patients that have been presenting um, with cancer. And you've, I mean, obviously the UK pandemic has been much worse than Australia with tens of thousands of cases and many deaths, a little less so in Scotland. What, uh, I mean, and has, just on people presenting to GPs, has that really diminished a lot in the UK during the pandemic? Yes, hugely. I mean, the, the lockdown messaging, the stay-at-home messaging um, was really very, very ruthless and, and people just simply weren't presenting. And, and a lot of our routine pathways um, also shut down. I mean, because of the because of the uncertainty and because of the lack of of the testing capacity at hospitals, the lack of PP equipment, we saw many of our routine diagnostic services at hospital level also um, being stopped. And and the paper we actually did, we we focused purely on the delays in diagnosis um, for these four particular cancer types. Um, in the English NHS. So you looked at breast cancer, colorectal cancer, bowel cancer, in other words, lung cancer and esophageal cancer. That's the gullet leading into the stomach. Yes. Um, so just briefly tell me about the study and what you've concluded. Yeah, so we purely we purely looked at delays in diagnosis here. So we're, we're not dealing here with delays in or changes or emissions of treatment. We purely looked at the delays in diagnosis and we looked at the excess deaths to be expected because of the delays in diagnosis of the next five years for these four cancer types. And essentially what we saw across the board for breast cancer, we saw an in, we estimated essentially a 10% increase in excess deaths. Bowel cancer, 17%, huge amount. For gullet cancer, 6 and for lung cancer, about 5%. What this led to is essentially around three uh, to 3,500 excess deaths over the next five years. But the important point here is these are much younger patients. So what that means essentially is around 59 to 63,000 years of lost life. And let me just make it very clear here. This is only delays in diagnosis. This is just in the English National Health Service, not in the other three regions. And this is only in the four major cancer types. So this is really the tip of the iceberg. Stay on the line, Richard, because I'm going to bring on in Grant MacArthur here. Professor Grant MacArthur is Executive Director of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre in Melbourne and Chair of the Cancer COVID-19 Network for Australia. Welcome back to the Health Report, Grant. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Norm. Now, you've been listening to what Richard Sullivan's been saying. How does that compare to what we've had here in Australia? Well, what uh, Professor Sullivan's study has shown is really to um, estimate what impact delays of diagnosis will have on cancer mortality. And I think the numbers are very uh, telling and concerning. So what we know in Victoria, where we have had approximately 30% reduction in reporting of cancers uh, since lockdown began, that if you consider that there could be uh, maintenance of those sort of reduction in numbers for a period of six months. That means a delay of over 3,000 cases of cancer in Victoria, and that's just looking at the common cancers. So in other words, the dimensions are not that dissimilar. 
No, I think they're quite uh, they're quite similar indeed. So although in Australia we did not have the same caseload as the UK um, for COVID cases, we did have all the impacts on healthcare that come from the lockdown. And I'll come back to you, uh, Richard Sullivan, in London. What solutions are you proposing in the UK? Because you've still got a significant pandemic. There's a lot of virus still circulating in the UK. Yeah, I think it's been. I think this is very, very telling. I think the first thing to say is, if you're, you know, that UK was driven by obviously this modelling exercise, which totally ignored the indirect impacts on healthcare. And one of the first things we've done is obviously we've set up this COVID nineteen and cancer global task force. Um, I'm delighted to say that Professor Karen Canfell at the Cancer Council New South Wales is leading the global modelling consortium. So in other words, making sure that when we do these estimates in terms of lockdown policy, we take into account the indirect impact. The second thing is, of course, at the operational level is getting patients to present with symptoms, getting those routine pathways moving again and dealing with this huge backlog that we have at the moment in diagnostic services. But it's really not easy because none of the operational aspects were put into place very early on. And unfortunately, because of the lack of testing, because of the lack of operational um, readiness, because of the lack of PPE in the UK early on in the pandemic, we're now playing catch up. And that catch up is probably going to go on for 12 to 18 months. So as I said, these are the estimates we're giving in this paper are the low level estimates here. I think what this says is in pandemics, you've got to prepare um, to keep your normal health services open. So Grant, what's happening in Victoria as we speak? I mean, I mean, when we've spoken about this before, it wasn't with you, it was with um, the Cancer Council Australia, but when we, we assumed that the Victorian cancer registry drop, late diagnosis, the diagnosis drop, was applicable nationally, but now you've got a second lockdown. What, what, are your, what do you know about what's happening here and the solutions? Well, I think the second uh, spike in caseload is going to extend this period of time at which uh, people are not uh, presenting you know, to their GPs and other healthcare providers for, for their workup. So, you know, what um, we will commence doing um, now is to uh, campaigns to strongly encourage uh, people to don't delay uh, attending your GP if you have any of the symptoms you mentioned early, uh, Norman, that might be cancer. People should attend for their screening investigations. Um, our healthcare... You're open, uh, you're open for business is the, is the message. Absolutely. Open for business and our healthcare providers. You know, one of the advantages we've had is time to prepare and really get our healthcare providers to set up very safe uh, situations where the chances of uh, being exposed to COVID is extremely low. And so we encourage people very strongly to don't delay and get, get your symptoms checked out. Thanks very much to you both. That was Grant MacArthur, who's Executive Director of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre and Chair of the Cancer COVID-19 Network, and Richard Sullivan, who's Professor of Cancer and Global Health at King's College, London. With Melbourne and Mitchell Shire in lockdown and people all over Australia finding social distancing tough to comply with, could one of the factors be our personality type? Are we more or less likely to abide by COVID restrictions depending on commonly described traits like neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, agreeableness and conscientiousness? That's what a group of US and French researchers sought to find out. The lead author was Dr. Damaris Ashwandan, who's in the College of Medicine at Florida State University. In daily life, neurotic people tend to worry a lot 
extroverts are sociable, open individuals are creative, agreeable people tend to be altruistic, and conscientious people tend to be disciplined and organized. And this is not pathological, this is just normal daily living. Exactly, yes. And uh, these personality traits are on a continuum. For example, I can be high on neuroticism, but I can also be high on agreeableness. Now, you did this survey of over 2,000 people, you measured their personality traits, and then you mm-hmm. asked them specifically about behaviours related to the spread of the coronavirus. What questions did you ask them in relation to the spread of the coronavirus? We asked them how concerned they are of contracting the coronavirus, whether they wash their hands or not. Preparatory behaviours, we asked them whether they stocked up on toilet paper. And we asked them, for example, how long they think it will last until society goes back to normal. And what about social distancing and mask wearing? Yes, we also asked them whether they wear masks and also whether they stocked up on masks. And what did you find? Neurotic people reported more concerns and were more pessimistic about the duration estimate. Extroverts were more optimistic about that and conscientious people undertook more precautions. So this is as we expected. Maybe more interesting is that Neurotic people undertook fewer precautions, so they did exactly the opposite of what they should do to protect themselves from catching the coronavirus. So although they were more worried about it, it didn't translate to action? Yes, exactly. Although they were more worried, they did not engage in more precautions. And this might have something to do with a maladaptive coping strategy. This means neurotic people may try to detach from threatening information to minimize the connection between their behavior and the possible outcome. So they're trying to escape it and deny it. Exactly. And what about the other personality traits? Did you find anything surprising in them? Most of them were in line with what we expected. What we also looked at is whether there is an interaction with age, because older adults are considered as the high risk for possible complications. So we thought there might be some interactions, and we found that personality was more strongly related with some of these behaviors. For example... Older people with higher conscientiousness prepared more than middle-aged and young people with high conscientiousness. So age did have an effect. Age did have an effect. If all older adults took coronavirus seriously, individual differences in personality should not matter, right? Because there would be no variability to predict. Yet our findings indicate that they do matter and could be considered in the development of personality-tailored communication to older adults as a possible risk group. And did personality relate to toilet paper hoarding? (laughs) Yes, it, um, it did. So people who were more extroverted bought more toilet paper. Right. And how does this translate to messaging? Because government authorities tend to have one message for the community and it doesn't seem to be tailored to individuals or individual types. Mm -hmm. Knowing what you know, how would you change the messaging? So I would definitely modify the recommendations for precaution for people high in 
neuroticism. And there I would try to reduce the threat to health information for neurotic people. I'm not exactly sure how to do that, but it might be a strategy that these people then would engage in more precautions if the health messaging contains less threatening information for them. So you don't want to worry them quite as much, but you've got to find another way of motivating them. Yes, exactly. And that's the difficult part. You also have to be realistic and provide accurate information, but in a less threatening way. Thank you very much, Damaris. That's been fascinating. Thank you. Dr. Damaris Ashwandan is in the College of Medicine at Florida State University. Before I go, I just need to mention the passing of Dr. Harry Nespelin, who was president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. He worked till the end while seriously ill. He never complained. You never heard him complaining once. He was cantankerous. He was funny. He was fiercely intelligent and well-informed and an unfilling advocate for Australian primary care. That's the foundation of our healthcare system. He'll be sorely missed. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report, and I hope you can join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.